morning. Glad that you're here. It's a privilege to be together today. Maybe you've been haunted by the question, or know someone that's been haunted by the question, can I know that I'm saved? And I think a question that's just as haunting for some people is, how can I know that I'm saved? Maybe it's not just the question, can I know that I'm saved, but I think that I can know, I'm pretty sure that I can know, but how do I go about answering that question to make sure that I absolutely do know that I have salvation, that I have eternal life to look forward to? It's an important question, and one that was submitted to me about doing a lesson on, and that's why I'm giving it to you this morning. But before I address this question, this topic, and begin to answer these questions, by the way, turn your Bibles to 1 John if you're not already there. Before I begin to address this question, I want us to think about a very important concept. Consider Jesus. Everything that Jesus did in offering us salvation. He left heaven, took on flesh, came to this earth, lived a perfect life, preached and taught to various groups of people, performed all kinds of miracles to uh, confirm the word and the message that he spoke. He spent three years with a, a group of 12 men we know to be the apostles, and he taught them about the kingdom and about how it, what it means to be a follower of him as well. And then when he came towards the end of his life, he began to tell his apostles that he wasn't going to be here very much longer, that he was going to have to leave them. And eventually, that's exactly what happened. He was arrested, he went on trial, he was eventually beaten and condemned to death. He carried the beam of his own cross up that hill and was nailed to it and died for the sins of the world. But three days later, he rose up from the grave. Life came back in him again and he rose from the grave and he appeared to his apostles again. And he told them the mission that they were to complete. And then he ascended, left the earth, and the Bible tells us that he took his place at the right hand of the Father and he is reigning over his church. He did then and he presently is now reigning over his church. Everything that Jesus did, what was it for? Was it to offer hope of eternal life or was it, was it to offer something questionable? Something that people can't have assurance in. Something that people have to wonder whether or not there really is hope found in that blood and in that life. I believe we know the answer to that question. That everything Jesus did was done to offer a certain salvation. Not a salvation that leaves question marks. Not a salvation that makes us wonder, uh, when am I saved? Or have I, uh, have I been unsaved? And I come back to a saved condition again. Not that, that's not the salvation that Jesus offered. Everything that Jesus did, He did to offer a group of people assurance. And so I want us to consider that before we ever begin to address this question, can I know that I am saved? Think about the nature of the salvation that Jesus offers to begin with. It's not one of, question, of, of questionable, uh, it's not a questionable salvation. It's one that was offered for sure, for certainty. 
And so maybe you are here this morning questioning your salvation because many people do question their salvation. But consider the nature of the salvation that Jesus offers first of all. When somebody asks me a question like this, a biblical topic at all, the first thing that comes to my mind is, is there a book in the Bible that addresses this topic specifically? Not a verse, because we can find verses, whether they directly or indirectly uh, talk about a subject or a question. Sometimes there are certain pericopes, a, a collection of verses that will address a certain topic. Sometimes there's chapters or a collection of chapters that will address a certain topic. Sometimes we can specifically find sections of Scripture that do address topics that we want to know more information about. But what about an entire book? Is there an entire book that addresses this topic? A lot of times the answer is no. But in this case, there is. There is a book in the New Testament that addresses this question. That's the only thing this book is about. It's the book of 1 John. It's all about assurance and knowing that I can have salvation. 1 John chapter 5, let's read a couple of verses together as we begin. 1 John chapter 5 and read verse 13. 1 John 5 and verse 13. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. It's comforting to me to know that there were Christians in the first century that struggled with this topic. Can I know that I am saved? And some of them could not know because there were so many different teachings, so many different beliefs that were coming into their community. And some people were giving attention to those, some were not. But it was leaving questions in these Christians' minds. Can I know? Why does John write the book of 1 John? I'm writing these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. No questions whatsoever. I want you to know for sure. I want you to have assurance. But you may be sitting in the pew this morning or in the chair. You don't have pews, but we have chairs. You may be sitting in the chair this morning thinking, well, I have assurance of salvation. I don't question my salvation at all. I know for a fact that I have eternal life. If I were to die right now, I know that I would go to heaven. And I don't question that at all. And so, how is this topic relevant for me? I know there may be some people in the audience that have this question, but I don't. And so, how can I gain something from this lesson that I can apply to my own life? Turn to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John 1, and look at verse 4. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let me ask you a question. We've got 140, 150 people here. Let's say this side of the auditorium 100% has confidence in their salvation. They don't question it at all. But this half of the congregation does. Can we have ultimate joy as a congregation of God's people? If half the congregation has assurance and the other half doesn't, can we have complete joy in the congregation? I would argue that we can't. 
Because we're in completely different perspectives. This half is questioning their salvation in Christ. This half knows for sure that they have salvation in Christ. And so the relationship is completely different. It's different with each other. It's different with Jesus. There are a lot of different things going on in our minds. The applications of our lives may be different. The joy that we can have is not complete. And so why is John writing this book? John's writing this book because perhaps he knows that there are some who do have salvation, uh, some who, who don't think they have salvation or who don't know they have salvation, and it's affecting their relationship, their fellowship with each other. And so he writes this book so everybody can have joy and have fellowship with each other. It reminds me of John chapter 15. Because why would John bring this idea up? Well, maybe he's thinking about a, 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 a conversation that Jesus had with the apostles back in John chapter 15. In John chapter 15, verses 1 through 10, Jesus told His disciples, Abide, or your translation may say, Remain or dwell in Me. Abide in Me, abide in Me, abide in Me. Ten times in ten verses, Jesus tells His apostles, Abide in Me. And He tells them why they need to do that. But verse 11 is the kicker. Because in verse 11, Jesus said, If you abide in Me, you will have complete joy. Full joy. And perhaps that's what John is thinking about here. That the only way complete joy comes to God's people is if they abide in Him. And since some here in this context are questioning whether or not they are abiding in Jesus, then that joy is kind of broken, in a sense. And so what about this topic? What about this question? Can I know that I'm saved? There are a lot of different ways that we could address this topic. But what I've chosen to do is just use this book and look at one concept from each chapter about and giving some reasons why we can know that we have salvation. There's five chapters in this book. I want to offer to you five concepts, five reasons why we can know that we have eternal life. Here's the first reason. Salvation has no gray areas. In 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, it says, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sins. In these verses that we just read, we see light and darkness. What does it mean to walk in the light? What well, means to walk in the light, meaning to walk toward God, to walk with God, to walk in God, to look at God, what the Bible says about the way that God commands His people to live and to live that life to the best of our ability. It doesn't mean that we will do everything correctly all the time, but we're trying to do everything correctly all the time. Our lives are headed in God's direction. That's what it means to walk in the light. Well, what does it mean to walk in the darkness then? Well, the exact opposite, right? I'm walking away from God. You may even say that I'm walking toward Satan or in Satan, toward evil. 
And I'm doing things the way that I want them to be done rather than the way that God wants them to be done. I want you to imagine that we have this room with the lights turned on, but there's nothing but complete space outside of these walls, outside of these doors. When here, we walk in, there's a light that's on. We can see the chairs where we need to sit. We can see uh, to not run into this, uh, to this podium right here. We can see everything that we need to see because the light is on. Everything's good. But if I walk out of this room and I walk into that total space, then the further and further away I get from the light, the darker and darker it gets. Because walking away from God is nothing but darkness. But walking in Him is light. Salvation has no gray areas. It's either light or darkness. Some people, I believe, feel that they are halfway in, halfway out. This half of my body is in the darkness, but this half is in the light. I'm partly in darkness, but I'm partly in light. That's not the way that things work. The Bible says that as long as I'm trying my best to do the, way, the things that God wants me to do, to walk in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses me from my sins. That's the way that it is for every Christian. There is no gray area. There is no half darkness, half light. You put those together, you've got a gray area. Well, that's where I'm walking, but I don't know. That's a man-made concept that does nothing but put questions, doubts in our minds about whether or not we can really have salvation. How can I know that I'm saved? Well, think about this. Salvation has no gray areas. We're either in the light or we are walking in darkness. Here's another idea. I can know that I have salvation because it doesn't necessitate my perfection. We cannot be perfect. No matter how hard we try, we cannot be perfect. And this is something i got to remind myself of a lot because I'm a perfectionist. Every bulletin article that I write, every paper that I write for school, every sermon that I write, you know, hardly anybody sees my sermon outlines. Every now and then somebody will ask me for one. Well, you know what I do? I sit down and I write a completely different one for that person. Because if I were to give them my sermon outline, they would see so many things on it. They're like, what in the world does this mean? And so rather than erasing the things that wouldn't make sense to them, I just go ahead and make a new one. But even when I write a sermon outline that nobody is going to see, I write and I rewrite and I read and I rewrite because I want it to be perfect. I can read my bulletin article 50 times, but every time it comes out, you know what I find? A mistake. It drives me nuts because I'm a perfectionist. But I'll never be perfect. I watched a, uh, a TV show one time when I was a kid. I can't remember what the name of the show was. But the episode was all about perfection. There was this dude who was supposed to be perfect. And the, the show was about going through a set of challenges uh, to, to prove this guy's perfection. Well, everything that this guy did, he came out perfect in the end. Everything. Well, toward the end of the show, there was one more challenge left. And it was to eat fried chicken without leaving anything else on the bone. Well, you had one guy that, the, perf the perfect guy, he started eating his fried chicken. The other guy that was in the challenge, he ate his fried chicken too. Well, at the end of the challenge, 
They looked at the perfect guy's plate and there was nothing on the plate. Bones were completely clean. There was nothing on the plate. There was nothing on his fingers. There was nothing on his mouth. Nothing. He ate all of that fried chicken with a knife and a fork. Well, the other guy's plate, it was just a mess. He didn't leave anything on the bone, but there was grease all over his hands, grease all over his face, grease all over the plate. Guess who won the challenge? The guy that had grease everywhere. Why? Because fried chicken's not supposed to be eaten with a knife and a fork. Everybody knows that. Nobody is perfect. This guy thought he was, but he wasn't. We need to remember this when it comes to our salvation because salvation in Jesus does not demand perfection. What does it demand then? Well, if you look at chapter 2, begin with verse 1 with me. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, John's trying to keep them away from sin, which we should try to stay as far away from sin as we can, but it's going to happen from time to time. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I can't be perfect, but thankfully, salvation doesn't depend upon my perfection. Well, what does it depend on? If it it doesn't depend on my perfection, well, yes, perfection is a part of it, but it's not mine. It's the perfect, righteous Savior. Jesus Christ is the only righteous one. He is the only perfect one. And so salvation in Jesus can happen. Not because I'm perfect or can ever be perfect, but because He is and always will be for eternity perfect. You may be wondering, well, what about Matthew 5 and verse 48 where Jesus says, you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, a couple of things I'll say about that passage. First of all, think about the context of that passage. In that passage, what Jesus is talking about is the way that we love people. It's easy for us to love people who love us back, right? When people are lovable, man, I can love them all day long, no problem. But what about when somebody slaps me in the face? What about when somebody says mean and hateful things to me? What about when I have an enemy? Love is a lot more difficult, isn't it? Well, in that passage, that's what Jesus is talking about. Be perfect in the way that you love people, the way that God is perfect. Because God sends rain on the just and the unjust. He blesses those who love Him and those who don't love Him, even His enemies. He still loves them to the point that He blesses them. Be perfect the way that your heavenly Father is perfect. But also think about what the word perfect means in Scripture. It's a word that means completion. Not that we can do everything without sin or perfectly the way that God does, but we can be complete people the way that God wants us to be. We can work to the point that our relationship with God demonstrates completion and perfection. A couple weeks ago, our family, we we watched Remember the Titans. Maybe some of you have seen that movie. There's a scene in that movie where they're in the locker room at halftime and they're losing the game. And Julius Campbell, one of the defensive linemen, stands up and he says, I'm not going to say that I'm perfect because I'm not. But he says, we have won every single game we have played until now. So this team is 
perfect. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at in Matthew 5 and verse 48. It's not that we will do everything 100% perfectly. It's not that when a team goes out to play a game, they're going to score a touchdown every single time they get the ball. No penalties, no tackles for loss, nothing. That's never going to happen. That's part of the game. But the ultimate goal is to what? To win the game. And if a team goes 10-0, and 0, they had a perfect season. Didn't mean they did everything perfectly, but they can say, say to be, to have a perfect season because their goals were met. And I think that's what God wants us to do. To meet the goals that He sets for us. Not that we will be perfect, but that we will try our best to live the way that He wants us to live. And when we do that, we can have salvation because our Savior is the Righteous One. How can I know that I'm saved? Well, think about this too. It doesn't demand that we follow our hearts. Some people will tell you, just follow your heart. Well, there are a couple of things that, that are, that's wrong with that statement. First of all, the statement, follow your heart, is basically telling you to do everything that you want to do. Do what makes you feel good. Do what you think you ought to do in a certain situation. Follow your heart. Well, I don't need to always do everything that makes me feel good. I don't need to always do everything that I might think I need to do. Which brings me to the second reason why that's a bad statement to make. It's because it can be misleading. The statement, follow your heart, can be misleading because it can make me feel like I'm doing the right thing when I'm actually doing the wrong thing. You remember Saul? In Acts chapter 23 and verse 1, Saul said, I've lived in all good conscience up until this day. That's when he was on trial after being arrested in Jerusalem. I did everything in good conscience. That would include persecuting the church. He thought that he was doing what was right. But he wasn't. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13, Paul said that God, God allowed him, He forgave him, even though he did a lot of stuff in ignorance. And that a lot of stuff includes persecuting the church, making people want to blaspheme even, he said, in that context. He did everything following his own heart. He thought it was right, but it was actually wrong. But I think the flip side will actually work here too. Sometimes following our heart will make us feel like we're doing the wrong thing when we're actually doing the right thing. One time I found myself in a man's home. I was sitting on his couch waiting on him to get ready. I was going to bring him somewhere. And I'll tell you where I was going to take him here in just a minute. But I'm sitting there and I'm looking around the house and there's beer cans all over the place. There's smoke rolling from the ashtray. And I'm thinking, man, what in the world am I doing here? When I walk out of this house, I'm going to smell like an ashtray, a beer can. I'm going to smell like a bar. What if somebody sees me walking out of this guy's house? I have no business being here. I need to leave. That's what I was thinking. Why was I in that man's house? Because I was picking him up to bring him back to the church building for a Bible study. I felt like I was in the wrong place. But technically, I was in the right place. Because I was trying to save this man's life, save this man's this man from his sins. 
following our heart is not always the best thing to do. Sometimes it can be, but it's not always the best thing to do. But I like John chapter 3, because in verse 19 we learn that we don't have to follow our own heart. It says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth, and reassure, your translation may just say assure there, we assure our heart before Him, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. See, sometimes our heart will condemn us. Why? Because we just want to emphasize the wrong thing. Sometimes all we see are the things that we do wrong. Man, I should have done this better. I wish I hadn't have done this. And that's kind of the stuff that just eats at us. And our heart condemns us because we do that so much. But thankfully, God knows our hearts. He knows everything that we do and that we don't do. And what does God do? For those who are walking in the light, going back to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7, for those who are trying their best to live a life for God, those Christians who do those things, God sees their heart, everything that they do, but what does He do? He brings the good things to the top. And the bad things leaves them alone because we're trying our best. And what does that do? It gives us confidence. It gives us assurance. Not because we're doing what we think we ought to do and we're the way that our heart's leading us, but because we know that God is going to emphasize those things that we both do and don't do correctly and emphasize the things that will be helpful for our salvation. Here's another thing. How can I know that I'm saved? Because it's based on God's love. I went to go get a set of tires one time, put on my truck. And I thought it was a pretty good deal. I bought these tires. And you buy the tires from this place, you get free rotate and balance for the life of the tire. And I thought, that's a pretty good deal. And so I bought those tires. Well, it comes time for me to get rotation and balance on my tires. And so I go to this place and I say, yeah, I want to get my tires balanced and rotated. And he goes on to tell me what the price is going to be. And I'm thinking, Haha, I've got you. I don't have to pay anything because I'm supposed to get this with the life of the tire. Well, I told him what I had. And he tells me the price again. I said, no, that's not the way things work. I was supposed to get free lifetime and balance for life of the tire. I bought the tires here. Well, he said in a little bit different tone of voice, the price of what it was going to cost. And I said again, no, that's not the way this works. I'm supposed to get... Fr and we went back and forth for a while. Finally, I said, I'm just going to go somewhere else and get it done. What bothered me about that whole situation wasn't the guy's tone of voice or anything like that. It wasn't even the fact that I didn't get my tires balanced and rotated that day. It was the fact that he thought he was there to serve me and I ought to be proud of it. He wasn't there to be my servant. He wasn't there to make sure that I got the best deal that I could possibly get. He wasn't there so that I could be a repeat customer in the future. He treated me as if I ought to be proud that He was just there standing behind the counter 
to serve me. Sadly, that's the way some people feel about God. Some people feel that God exists to serve them, and that is completely false. God does not exist to serve us. We exist to serve Him. And we've got to get that order right. That's what John emphasizes here in this chapter. Chapter 4 of 1 John. Look at verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Not that we've loved God. In other words, we didn't do anything to take initiative to do anything to, 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 for our own salvation. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. When Adam and Eve ate of that fruit that they were not supposed to eat of, what did they do? They immediately, they were ashamed. They hid themselves when they found that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together to cover up their nakedness because they were ashamed of their sin. What did man do whenever sin entered their life? The first thing that they tried to do, the first thing that they thought about was covering it up. But what did God do? The first thing that went through God's mind was, okay, we've got to take care of this. We've got to figure out a way to bridge this gap between evil and righteousness. Between sinful man and a righteous God. It wasn't man's idea. If you left it up to me to draw up the plan of salvation, every one of us would be condemned to death. And probably a lot sooner than we would be if we just went on with our lives. Because the way that we would have salvation would not be the perfect, sufficient way to do it. Only God can do that. And it's His love that gives us salvation. Not our own. Not our love for Him. Not our love for each other. His love for us is what salvation is based on. And if you look at verse 17, notice what that does for us. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. What does God's love do for those who are saved? Number one, it gives them confidence. Number two, it takes away fear. I don't know anybody that's scared to death of love. You're going to love me? Oh, I'm going to run the other way. I'm not talking about a man-woman relationship like we're 12, 13 years old, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. Love is a great thing. Love takes away all fear. It gives us confidence. But it's not our love. It's God's love. How do we know we're saved? Because it's based on God's love. And then finally, it carries with it the avenue of prayer. Chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. Or look at verses 14 and 15 first. And this is confidence. This is the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. One of the things about prayer when it comes to my salvation is that I have the opportunity as a Christian to pray for myself and receive confidence, receive forgiveness from God. 
So whenever I feel down, whenever I feel, just use the term, disgusted with the way that I've been living my life, I can pray to God and God will forgive me. God will instill that confidence that I need within me. Prayer is necessary for us a lot of times. And it's one of the things that brings us confidence as a Christian. But what if I'm not confident with my own prayers? Sometimes I, have the oppor- uh, sometimes I, 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 I fail to stay focused whenever I pray. Sometimes I don't feel comfortable praying for myself all the time. I feel selfish and I just don't feel like I'm doing what I need to be doing. So what do I do then? If I don't want to pray for myself or I feel inadequate in my prayers for myself, what do I do then? Can I still gain confidence through prayer? You betcha. Look at verses 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. There have been books written on what sin leading to death is and what it's not. I'm not going to go into all that. I just want to focus on this. What else gives me confidence? My prayers for myself, but also your prayers for me. It's a beautiful thing to know that I can be in a terrible state spiritually questioning my salvation and down on myself, not even wanting to pray for myself, but knowing that there's another Christian that's at home, at the dinner table, or at the bedside, wherever, praying for me. And you know what God will do? Hear that person's prayer the same way that He'll hear my own and forgive me of my sins. Of course, this is for those who are walking in the light. And that blood is continuously covering them of their sin. Can I know that I'm saved? You better believe I can know that I'm saved. And it may be that you're here this morning and you've wrestled with this question lately. Can I know that I'm saved? Or how can I know that I'm saved? Maybe some of you have gone so far to the point where you say, I'm, just don't, I'm not saved anymore. I'm sure of it. I've just done too many things. Are you a Christian this morning? Are you walking in the light as God is in the light? I assure you, because of the grace of Jesus and the perfection of Jesus, not because of our goodness or anything that we do, because of the grace of Jesus Christ, we have salvation. If number one, we have been saved, and number two, we are walking in the light. You may be here this morning and you're not a Christian. The only way to become a Christian is for God to add you to His church. Well, how do we do that? The Bible tells that we repent of our sins, are baptized for the remission of our sins, and we walk in new life. When we do that, God adds us to His church. And we start that walk of salvation. Have you done that this morning? If you haven't done that, you need to. Because the only way that assurance of salvation can be had is if we follow those steps first and let God's grace cover us. Maybe you have done that this morning, but you've fallen away or you've been unfaithful and you need, to, you need prayers of your brothers and sisters in Christ. You need that confidence again, that reassurance of salvation. 
have the opportunity to respond to the invitation this morning and receive that assurance. If you need to come this morning, please do so as we stand and sing.